This week, we're resharing one of our favorite episodes of the Single Tracks podcast. If you've already heard this one, don't worry, because next week we'll be back with an all new show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Dylan Rin. Dylan is the lead coach at A Single Track Mind, where he teaches mountain bike skills to riders of all abilities. He's been in gravity racing since 1994 and served as the head coach for two high school mountain bike teams. Dylan is based in Truckee, California, near Lake Tahoe. Thanks for joining us, Dylan. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Jeff. I'm glad to be here. So what attracted you to gravity sports and racing initially? story probably goes back to high school. I used to race Nordic skiing as a kid, uh, ran cross country in high school and never had a great alpine experience with, uh, with skiing. Hmm. Um, I started alpine skiing in like mid, um, mid nineties, I guess early nineties. And then I went from there and realized that going downhill was really, really fun (laughs) and started to, to definitely look out more, uh, gravity sports. And that's sort of when downhill really started taking off. And I uh, basically got in then. I used to race on my old, uh, my old Lightspeed Ibed or uh, Obed. Uh, it was a old amp version FSR frame. And I used to go high posting and I would get heckled all the time. <laughs> that's awesome. So, I mean, I guess you must have been pretty young when you started. It, you know, high school racing is big now, but it didn't, it wasn't big back then, right? Yeah, no, there was no such thing as high school racing. First mountain bike would have been 89. Uh, I was probably 11 years old at that time. And I, I broke that one <laughs> and then went out. And my first bike was a, a Marin Bear Valley. And then, yeah, I got one of the first Santa Cruz hecklers in, uh, in 94. And that was a long travel bike at like four inches, you know, 100 mils of travel. We were, we were so excited. <laughs> I bet. So how did you learn how to, you know, race those kinds of bikes and to, to do, get into gravity riding. What did you do to, to become a better rider back then? I, back then I did nothing. I had no idea what I was doing. I just followed the older, older guys that were there and followed them. My first time of like really actually understanding riding was probably in like 2008 or 2009. And, uh, I'd already been through that, had a pro license and yada, yada. And I started out thinking, God, it'd be really cool to start teaching. I should take a lesson. <laughs> and I, I took a lesson and I was blown away by, by what I did not know. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's a long time to be sort of wandering around on your own 94 to 2008. Yeah. 14 years of, I mean, would you say, did you have sort of bad habits? I mean, what did you, what did you learn from that first class that you took? I think the, the, the biggest thing I took away from it was like, just where you are on the bike and actually thinking about it. You know, I, I was, I was that sort of hunt and peck. I had, you know, friends that were fast and groups of riders that I would ride with and they, they'd give you some tidbit here and there, you know, like the best was like, well, if you didn't keep crashing, you'd, you'd probably win. You know, I was like, well, that's pretty obvious. Thanks. You know, and, you know, it's the, that sort of stubborn, stubborn teenager. But, uh, yeah, I would say, I would say it was just how the body works on the bike and understanding that, you are in control was probably the biggest thing. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's get into some tips. So, you know, bike parks are becoming more and more popular all over the world. So walk us through some of the tips you might offer somebody who's trying to ride downhill for the first time. Yeah. I mean, it it really depends on, on the rider itself, but like, you know, with bike parks and, and the varying terrain you get there, I mean, it's, you know, I would say it's the same as any sort of, you know, park esque thing is, 
the biggest thing is is know where you're going, right? Pay attention in a bike park and and don't get yourself in over your head at first. Mm-hmm. And then and then as far as like riding tips goes, you know, it's it's back to basics really. It's just thinking you're out there for a long day. Try to be as efficient as possible. You know, riding smooth is really good. Thinking about where your balance is. You know, thinking weight in the feet. I mean, that's a classic, but weight in the feet. And then thinking about looking ahead, you, you know, being prepared and just paying attention to your surroundings. Stuff can come up really fast in a park and there's also lots of people out there. So, yeah. What are, I mean, what are some of the drills that you would go through with someone? I mean, what's interesting is downhill is, I mean, it's almost like, it's like Alpine skiing, you know, like people will have never biked before, never mountain bike before. And they, yeah. you know, see a bunch of rental bikes at a resort and say, Hey, that looks like fun. I think I'll, I'll give that a try. So what would you, what would you say to someone who's doing that for the first time? What's like step one? If we were, if it was the first, 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 first time out there and they're getting out there, I, you know, I'd basically have them ride around in the parking lot, right. And be like, okay, you know, here's, here's how you stop first, right? So <laughs> yeah, that's key. Here's your, here's your basic, here's your brakes. And then I basically just have them try to stand up and like stay in what, you know, what's sort of known as the attack position or, or offensive position, however you want to think of it. But, you know, level pedals with a, with a bend of the ankles, hinged at the knees, hinged to the hips with a slight bend to your arms. And then I'd work them through a, a range of motion so that, you know, you, they can understand where they are in the bike. You know, and then with braking is explaining that your front brake is actually your friend and then getting them comfortable with with using their front brake so they can have better control and that steeper stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of people, beginners especially, are told, you know, to avoid the front brake like at all costs because you're you don't want them to to do an endo. But the front brake is actually really important, especially when you're going downhill. Right. Yeah, it it fully is. I mean, it's one of the things I always try to, you know, try to get into people's head is that you have to trust it. And it's always a fear, you know, everyone thinks, oh, I'm going to flip over and die. But there's a whole lot of other pieces that sort of play into that flip over and die model. So it's not just the front brake that happens to be applied. Yeah, right. Like body position, I imagine, has a lot to do with that, like how you're leaning over the bars or, or how you're leaning back, right? Yeah, totally. You know, if you if you think that if you're too far forward, yeah, there's weight in the handlebars. So any any force there is going to is going to push you forward because you're already forward. And then the actual opposite happens is that if you're all the way back, you reduce traction. But if there's anything there and you don't have a way to slow your body down, your body's actually accelerating the whole time your bike's decelerating and you're getting thrown forward still. So it's interesting how how the similar opposites of balance create a similar action, even with a lot of other things as far as, you know, the other part where everyone wants to learn how to jump. And it's, that's a whole nother story to go into. (laughs) Well, yeah, you were saying earlier too, how you let people know that they shouldn't just let the bike take them down the trail, right? Like you're in control of the bike. So talk a little bit about that. Like, how does that work as far as riding downhill? Well, I think, I think with downhill, the biggest thing is it's a quote I use a lot is you want to, you want to go for a ride. You don't want to get taken for a ride. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like mountain biking itself is an offensive sport. You can't be, you can't be passive in it. It's going to be driven from your body. And if you are just sort of lazy or tentative with it, you're going to get taken for a ride. But if you can get in a position that you can drive the bike and make sure that you're thinking about movement of the bike coming from your body it's a much better sort of visual to think of. 
a biggest thing I think for for downhill and descending, especially when you get into parks that may have more rough terrain, is just thinking about what your feet are doing. You know, classic standing, classic standing on it. You sort of have this this movement of foot pattern that that creates a you know the imba and other people they call it a, a wedge. But it, you basically have a heel drop out of your front foot and a toe point from your back foot that creates this sort of you know, picture a wedge pushing against two sides, mm-hmm. which is great for, for staying in sort of flatter, you know, terrain, staying balanced on the bike and in, um, in, you know, normal conditions. But you get into rougher terrain where the bike is slowing down unexpectedly. You need to have a bracing foot sort of set up or, or where your, your front foot is already sort of planted. But if you can think about consciously kind of driving your back heel down, you, you set yourself up to push the bike through any obstacle that, um, that might slow the bike down instead of the bike slowing down and then you rotating around that that sort of natural pivot point of your bottom bracket. You can push the bike through by bracing with that sort of back back heel down and that forward foot. Yeah. And is that I mean is that only for descending and also is that only something you would you're able to do with flat pedals or could you do it clipless and and does it apply to like flat pedaling or or riding uphill? Well, I, it it can actually. I mean, it's it has a bunch of different purposes, you know, not, let alone just that. I mean, that's one of them. You think that your movement really comes from your feet as far as, you know, sort of where your body goes. And there's other parts to it that are, are movement, you know, movement based. But I think that, that dropping the heels in descending is more so for rougher terrain. It's not as needed for, say, a, you know, a flow trail park run. But there's also lots of other instances where you're going to drop the heels you could drop it it's done for manual it's done for braking it's done for just movement of your hips forward and backwards you know if you point your toes the opposite movement happens where you actually move the hips forward Mm -hmm. so it's it's a it's a big piece for it as far as with clipless or flats it's definitely easier with flat pedals because the the foot position usually moves more midfoot with flats. Yeah. And it seems that a lot of people riding clipless tend to either come from a road background or have just been riding clipless for so long that their ideas is that, you know, it's it's a pedaling efficiency and clipless pedals are the only way that you can pedal efficiently. And <laughs> so I want to have my cleat way cl- close to my toes. And, right. you know, that way I can incorporate all of these extra muscle groups and I can pull up on the backstroke and yeah, it, it really doesn't help, but you can totally do it with clipless pedals. It just seems to be a little harder to, to support yourself if the cleats, if the cleats are really far forward. Right. And I, that's, that's one of my big things that I try to get people to do is if you are riding clipless is move the cleat further back. There's, I mean, there's a several, I don't know if there's several, but there's a couple clipless mountain bike shoes out there right now that are actually moving the possible cleat location up to 15 millimeters further back than usual. So wow, I, I think the ideal pedal position for me, and I think a lot of people will kind of go with that, is you're thinking like pedal axle is around, you know, a centimeter behind the ball of the foot or at least behind the ball of the foot so that you have an athletic standing, an athletic uh, foot position. That's really helpful. So yeah, I like too how you said that you should really think about riding a bike, you should think about driving the bike. I mean, we're used to, that's the word we use is ride, but yeah. you don't really want to just hop on the bike and let it take you where it wants to go. You, you're the driver, you're deciding where it goes. And another thing I've heard a lot is that you want to separate your body from the bike's motion. So that's something that I 
tend to have a problem with, you know, coming from more of a cross country trail background where, you know, you want to open your stance up and you want to be able to like move the bike underneath you, but keep sort of your body position straight. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of in the, in the beginning, you know, as far as that basic balance, right. So that, that's sort of the, the base of it is that the body position starting with that hip hinge that everybody talks about is sort of setting you up to have separation. Center of mass is a common word that's, that's thrown out there. You want to think that your center of mass is what, where all the movement is coming from, right? So your, you know, hips up to shoulders, the larger, larger portion of your body, your arms are an extension of that and legs are an extension of that. So you have those two points and that's, that's, I think where your absorption or suspension really takes place is in that, not in the bike itself. Yeah. The advantage of the park bikes is that you're dealing with extra eight inches of travel, right? But those are just an extension of your real suspension, <laughs> you know? So your body is just that, that, that key component to keeping contact with the ground or absorbing that contact or input from the ground. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting way to think about it. Enduro racing is another form of mountain biking that's becoming really popular these days. So what are some skills that enduro racers need that maybe cross country or trail riders might not have? I think, I think a big one is, is the mental side of it is sort of stepping away from, you know, the pieces of, of riding harder or climbs or, you know, or, or, or separating the actual ride into components where, you know, a cross country race is it's a race. That's your one purpose is go as fast as you can for X amount of miles or hours or whatever it is. But where, where enduro is, is that it's a super mental game, you know, of, of trying to, you know, keep your body recovered enough to have the energy to sort of throw down when you need to. Yeah. Um, as, as far as skills go, like trail riders, it really depends on what your hometown trail is. You know, there's plenty of skilled riders out there that probably have the skill for a lot of enduro, but I think it comes down to is realizing what your terrain, local terrain is and what your race courses are for cross country riders. It's, it's just getting in that mindset. I think of, of, uh, you know, it's not on all the time that you can rest <laughs> on your ascents. You can rest on your yeah. transfers. It's not, you don't have to pedal always, always, always. And I think for trail riders, it's, it's probably pretty similar too. as far as like, you know, skills go average, you know, average, uh, enduros are, are downhill based, right? So, you know, cornering is a huge one, right? I think, I mean, really cornering goes into everything. If you can't corner, you can't go fast. Right? It was the classic motocrosses. It's corner for dough and straights are for show, right? <laughs> so it's, you know, cornering is, is your quintessential skill pretty much for any discipline out there yeah uh extra for enduro i think is is just i mean physical training is getting strong enough to maintain maintain your form for you know up upwards of seven stages so you're racing for a long period of time yeah that's one of the thing i think that cross-country riders and trail riders too maybe would underestimate for enduro is you know, when you, when you're riding cross country, like you said, you, you view the downhills as sort of a time for recovery, but you actually need a ton of energy for that. I mean, if you're feeling tired, you're not going to descend very well, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, if, if you were to run a heart rate monitor on me, like my climbs would be at, you know, 120, 110, you know, I'd be, 
I would be resting the whole time. And then in the descents, you know, I'm taxed. I'm at 180, 170, you know, for, wow. for like seven minutes. Right. It's not like, it's not like, it's like, Oh yeah, that was the old, Oh, well you're a downhiller. You, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not really riding a bike anymore. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, you know, yeah, you are. I mean, look at the last world cup result, right? Martin comes out off the, off the EWS win and then handles everybody in a, uh, in a world cup downhill race. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they, those guys have skill. So, yeah, you know, and it's, it's, it's different too, because the enduro races sort of throw everything at you. It's not like, okay, here's a gnarly downhill track. Yeah. You'll have a gnarly downhill track and then you'll have, you know, a 14 minute somewhat flat pedal stage where you have to have that sort of, you know, physical and mental fortitude to be able to push through that. So, yeah. Well, one of the things too about enduro, a lot of the courses you're riding them sort of sight unseen. I mean, you don't know exactly what the trail's going to throw at you. So, what are some tips that you give people in terms of like vision on the trail, like looking ahead and and reacting to obstacles in the trail? Yeah, so vision, I mean, vision's your, you know, sort of I I, I joke there's three things that are important with mountain biking and safety sport. Right. So (laughs) number one is having fun. And then number two and three are sort of interchangeable with vision and body position. If you don't have good body position, then you're not going to have good vision because you're not going to be set up to to be looking ahead. The idea with vision is you want to be thinking you're two steps ahead. Right. Mm -hmm. I've heard further a lot. Look further down the trail, further down the trail. Yeah further is good to a point. You don't want to go too far though. Yeah. So, you know, for me, descending wise, like if I'm in my attack position, I'll be standing my peripheral vision. I'll be able to see my hands. Like, I don't want to be able to see my feet Mm -hmm. per se in my, you know, like, like my good, um, my good descending position. And that gives me a good view of, you know, where my front wheel is, where my hands are, sort of what my control is. Mm -hmm. And then, and then once I start getting out and going on trail, like, I basically tell people, you know, of course, look where you want to go. Mm-hmm. You know, reason reason being is you go where you look. If you're looking at that tree and telling yourself, don't hit that tree, your mind filters out, don't. And all you <laughs> see, all you, all you hear or see is hit that tree. Yeah. Right. So thinking about imaging one, where you want to go and visualizing what your next step is. It's, it's really common, especially in, in blind sections of trail to get hung up on something and sort of like tunnel out where you can only see that one obstacle. Yeah. And you have, you have to let go of that obstacle. There was a, a stage in China peak race that I just did out here. Stage five, we were sitting at the top of it and it was, you know, the banter at the top was like, well, I hope I live through this one. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was a pretty gnarly stage and it's, it's unfortunate cause I don't, I, you know, it's, it's one of those that I would have loved a couple years back, but I just haven't put myself in, you know, those, that sort of situation for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I came around this corner. I went straight into it. I was so focused on that part that I fully tunneled out. I got into it. I got to the bottom of it. Yeah. And then I realized that the trail's going to the right. Like, and I'm already to the right turn. And I'm like, I just totally locked myself out and got so hyper focused on making it through this one section and seeing all the things that were going on there. Yeah. That I didn't, I didn't progress my vision to the next step. And I, basically stopped my bike, got off, got back on and rode the other direction. I was like, well, <laughs> there goes a couple seconds there. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's difficult and it, and it might mean, you know, unfortunately slowing down enough so that you have enough reaction time and to take it back a couple steps is like, how do you, how do you improve your vision? And it's, 
it's really sort of challenging. I think that's like one of the biggest battles out there is having that vision. And it's, it's just consciously thinking about looking what, looking at the train and riding what you want to ride instead of just looking at the trail and seeing that you have, you know, a 16 to three, 16 inch to three foot wide trail mm-hmm. that you're rolling down that you have a choice of where you, where you can go and what you're doing on the trail. So it's, I think for me, that's the biggest with vision. It's just being conscious of you have a two inch tire and you can ride wherever you want. And if you don't look at it, you're not going to see it. So, (laughs) right. Yeah. I mean, how does that work though? I mean, is it, is it just that, that your bike can roll over a lot of things that you don't think it can, or are you actually like sort of steering where you know that you need to be, if that makes sense? Like, are you kind of like predicting where, your, your, your vision is like a step ahead of like what your body is actually doing, or is it just that you don't need to worry about a lot of stuff? You're going to go over it. There's it's, it's a mix of both. I think right where the, the modern bikes are pretty stunning, you know, is what they can do. I've definitely ran over stuff that I'm like, Oh God, here we go. And then I'm like, Oh cool. I made it. That's awesome. And then a joke, it's like, you know, watching, if you have good vision, it's like watching modern, you know, videos on the internet where everything just plays out perfectly. And it's like, oh, okay, there's no hiccups. Yeah. Or like when we were on dial up and you have like that lag and like the video would stall out and you're like waiting for the next piece to start playing again. That's, that's sort of like what having good vision and not having good vision is, is that as you just sort of said a minute ago is, yeah, if, if you're ready for it and you're that next step ahead the action's already planned out. You don't need to worry about that next step. So if, if you're thinking that your vision is basically buffering the trail, then you're set. I, I tend to like overthink it. I think sometimes, you know, where, where I am wondering about that, like, how does this actually work? You know, like, yeah. like is my, I'm looking two seconds down the trail and then how does my body know like, all right, in two seconds, like you need to, you know, do this move. Um, but like you said, I mean, yeah, that's a really good analogy, like a video or a laggy, like, buffer you know yeah yeah like it it just works yeah and like i think i think the biggest is like as you say there is like how does the body know so like there's 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 reactive state and then and then like proactive right so if you put yourself into a proactive where you've already planned out this motion then you're not in the situation where your body is having to like call up a connection and then make that connection happen mm-hmm. and then and then connect to a different point it's just going through this you know, proactive being a subconscious, if you can see it and image it as you're going through the trail. So almost thinking of like, you're watching a ghost, you know, you use another video game reference, but like old car games or probably modern car games too, (laughs) they would have like, you know, the ghost that would be like the track champion that you'd follow down the track. And like, you're like, Oh, that's the fast line. That's a fast line. And so like, if you can image yourself riding through that obstacle, then your body already has that sort of program set where if you roll into it and you just black out and go, uh, I don't, I don't know how to do this. You don't have a, you don't have a preset program to go through it. Yeah. And so you get, you get into that reactive state and there's, there's those classic writers that come down and they're like, Oh my God, I just had all of these like oh moments. Right. So like those sort of, those sort of moments. And, and that's where the writer is like every time getting just scared by everything and just going, Oh my God, I almost died there. And I almost died there. Right. So those are, yeah. those are those reactive moments where, you're more into that conscious action and you're just like saving yourself the whole way down, Mm -hmm. you know, where you're just like, Oh no, Oh oh no. Oh no. And it's, you watch a rider like that and they're not smooth. They're like ping ponging all the way down the trail back and forth and back and forth. And those, those riders that have that, have that pre-programmed or that planned out route. I mean, again, another, another great is just watching 
watching the uh, the surgical precision of World Cup downhill riders, where you just see you like we don't even have an idea of what those courses look like, and you just see them inches away from the edge of the tape and then cutting across and then going through these massive holes and pre-jumping all this stuff. And like, yeah, there's, they're sitting at the top of that race course, like mentally rolling through that imaging it all the way down where they are, where's this section, where's that section. And then to take it all the way back is like with Enduro, you have to be able to do that on the fly basically is take all of this input of a, of a crazy trail and figure out where you're going to go. So in that part of it, you have to have the confidence in yourself that you can manage that, right? And if you're going through it and you don't have that that true self confidence in your rider ability, then you're not you're not going to be able to ride, you know, as 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 fast as you'd want to in that blind situation. Yeah. And I I, I for me I for me that's my favorite is riding a trail blind, you know, and trying to ride it as quick as I can because I think it's a it's a great test of of your you know of rider of your rider ability. Yeah. Yeah. As mountain bikers, I mean, we love to talk about the flow state and I think that's kind of what you're describing as well. And, and you hear from athletes, all kinds of athletes, not just cyclists or bikers, uh, about visualizing and how important that is. I mean, if you're a tennis player or or anybody else, it's all about that, like seeing yourself do it in your mind and then, yeah, your body just is able to do it somehow. Maybe we don't need to overthink how that works. We just need to know that it works. Yeah. And so I I think that's the biggest part is in that is the only way you can get subconscious action out of stuff is by practicing stuff outside of that environment. You know, you're not learning great skill by just going out and riding trail over and over and over and over and over again. Right. So like, yeah, there's those pieces. But as I said, the the rider, if you don't have that self-confidence, then you're not going to be able to develop it on trail because you're always going to be in that sort of, I don't know, I don't know. But if you can take it back and actually focus on skills that are pertinent to, you know, your race run, like practicing corners in a parking lot, like going through and practicing just riding up curbs and things like that, of getting that muscle memory so that you can get that that electric connection to fire correctly instead of, you know, whatever whatever your set you know, motor connection is, that you're not creating that action. And it's it's really kind of interesting is is that I think that it's getting a little bit more common, but it's not common for cyclists to practice, right? Yeah. You think about what other sports are out there. How much time does a baseball player play in the actual game? How much time does a football player actually play in a game? And how much time do they actually spend practicing, right? Football's out there for an hour on a Sunday, and they spend the whole week before that, you know, running running practice, running drills, running this, doing that, spend, you know, and we, we go out, we ride our bike. We're like, okay, cool. I'm getting better. <laughs> but we don't actually spend any focused time on what we're doing on the bike or how the bike is moving. Right. We just go more time on the bike is going to make me faster. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess most of us do tend to focus more on, yeah, sort of the endurance side of it. Um, but you know, you make a good point if you're a baseball player, football player, you know, you do spend some of your time at practice, like conditioning and working on strength, but much more of it is, you know, running plays and throwing balls and doing skills type work. Yeah. Yeah. Setting it up so that you can have the reaction time so that when the catcher throws the ball at a second, that the you know second baseman's in the right place to get the tag on the, you know, on the runner. So it's, it's, yeah, we, you know, we go out there, we ride and there's, I think that 
that as you get older as an adult, you get less time to do stuff and you want to use that time to do what you want to do. And it's hard to justify it. You're like, well, I'm not a kid anymore. I don't need to go play. I don't need to play on my bike. Right. But like, everybody's like, God, I wish that, you know, I wish I was good as that 14 year old. And it's like, well, yeah, that, that 14 year old <laughs> doesn't have to go to the store, doesn't have to pick up groceries, doesn't have to cook dinner, Yeah, just goes to school, doesn't have to get the paycheck on Monday, which is the biggest one. It's like, well, if I get hurt, I can't, you know, support my family. But, and then, and then they just go out and play on their bike, right? Like all they're doing is just like, oh, what does this do? How does this happen? What does this do? How does this happen? You know, and they go back and forth and back and forth and they're just sitting there and then they're just sitting there, if they're totally into it, watching mountain bike videos, watching this videos, watching Danny McCaskill. And they're going, oh, cool. Oh, you can do that. <laughs> you know, and, and the ones that are like super passionate about it, they go through and they do that. And then they go out for two hours under the streetlight and practice and practice and practice and practice. So, you know, it's it's the hard part is that if we just even spent five or six minutes in the garage, coming home, riding around, doing track stands, and simple basic stuff like that, you would notice a huge improvement in riding. It's, uh, you know, simple, simple little balance drills. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Um, cause yeah, I mean, I've been riding for a long time, 20 years at least. And I've never until recently, like you said, spent time working on skills and it's only because my son now is starting to ride and, and I see what he does, you know, like you said, he loves doing that, just like messing around on the bike and, you know, if I'm there, I might as well mess around too. And yeah, now I'm learning how to do stuff that I couldn't do before. So yeah, definitely endorse that for sure. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk about skills for riding flow trails, some good beginner skills to work on, and we'll talk about some of the more difficult skills to master on the bike. Stay tuned. You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. Okay, so maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find single tracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the single tracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. So flow trails are pretty awesome because they're designed so that anybody can enjoy them. So I want to ask you, Dylan, how can more advanced riders get the most out of flow trails? A lot of people poo-poo them and say like, oh, flow trails, they're not challenging enough. And, you know, I'm, I've been riding a long time. I'm an expert. Like, I don't need flow trails. But there's still a lot of fun stuff you can do if you know what you're doing, right? Yeah, for sure. Flow trails. I mean, I think that I think the hardest part about flow trails is they've, as a reason that they've gotten a bad rap, is that you know I, I think that they are typically judged as something with a bunch of berms and some rollers in it and super smooth. Um, and I think that I think that you can actually design a flow trail that can be more technically skilled. You know, like where it's you know might be some features that are a little rocky or rougher, mm-hmm. but you know, for the, the average sort of storybook, you know, flow trail, like, you know, we have, we have a couple out here in Santa Cruz and Marin and, and things like that. Um, it's, it's really about, you know, just focusing on body. Like we, uh, we have one locally, well, not locally to me, but where I, where I grew up, well, I didn't really grow up there, but I lived there for a short period of time. Um, I sort of grew up there in a backstory, so it's confusing. But anyways, 
it, you know, it, we did a, we did chainless races down it. And I, I think that that right there is a, is a great way to build skill is, is focusing on not trying to really use, um, use pedal force to do stuff is, is use, use the bikes, you know, use the bikes contact patch and your center of mass and wait to basically pump down the track. Right. So using those pieces of, uh, you know, waiting and unweighting and moving the bike, um, and maintaining momentum. I mean, we've seen a bunch of historic race runs where Aaron Gwen's chainless win to Nico Mullally's chainless second worlds to, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of stuff like that. And it one for me brings in focus on, you know, movement or, uh, forward momentum maintenance so that you're, you're maintaining that speed. You're, you're being as efficient as possible. Yeah. You're not jamming on the brakes before a turn. Like you're, you're, yeah. Yeah. Keeping your momentum and not trying to make up for it by pedaling really hard. Exactly. Exactly. And it also, I mean, if, if you truly do take it chainless and take out, um, take out the, you know, take the chain off the bike, you, uh, you lose some of the support and stability and you also change the way the bike rides, which is kind of a, kind of a trippy, you know, especially if you're on a full suspension, you know, you're, you're changing the dynamic of the bike, which is, is cool. It's good and bad. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really efficient way to sort of think about, you know, trying to get smoother on the bike. I, uh, I actually, with our Enduro team up here, there's a trail called coaster and, uh, we go out there and I make the kids, ride it without pedaling. I'm like, you have to go the whole way down without pedaling. Right. And so, you know, it's, some of them will get parts of it. Some of them will get other parts of it, but yeah, I think that, I think that trying to ride, especially flow trails without thinking of, of using your feet, you know, or using your pedals, you're still using your feet obviously, but you know, is, is, is really, really good for building skill and especially for, you know, top riders. And I think that like, um, you know, uh, cross country riders, especially, you know, or, 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 or riders from, you know, a, a road background or, or something like that. I mean, trail riders too, even, you know, I, I see a lot of people wanting to pedal more than they need to, mm -hmm. you know, and obviously in a race run, it's, you're trying to get as many pedal strokes as you can, you know, out there. But I, uh, I myself am not a super fit rider, but, uh, yeah, I, I can keep up you know, and a lot of that is just being super efficient on the bike is, is using the terrain for my advantage, you know, and all of that flow work of, of pumping berms, pumping rollers, unweighting, weighting and unweighting through stuff. It, it all transfers into terrain. You know, you, you look at it just because the roller is perfectly round and manicured doesn't mean that that same bio, you know, that, that same body movement doesn't, transfer to a big ass rock, you know, or something that's, that's of similar feature, but more intimidating in, in the, uh, you know, in its, uh, in its shape or trail, you know, trail setting or situation. Yeah. It seems, I think a lot of people tend to see flow trails and they get away with a lot of stuff on them, you know, I mean, they don't, they feel like they don't have to use their skills as much, you know, and, and, they don't realize though that they're not riding it correctly or, you know, or that they could ride it a lot faster and really challenge themselves in different ways. I mean, just cause there's not rocks and roots and, you know, gnarly stuff on it. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that it's, it's easy. No, by, by no means. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it, it's pretty impressive. I mean, when you pick up the, you know, pick up the pace, they definitely change too. And you think about it, you know, if, I've seen sections of trail where I was like, Oh yeah, this is fun. And then, you know, I watched like Mick Hanna roll through it and you're like, Oh, 
Oh, <laughs> oh okay. I get it now. You yeah. know, and like what, what took me like, you know, four rollers and a turn he took into, you know, two doubles and, and then took the turn and then jumped to another turn. That's like right down the hill. And you're like, Oh, I, I didn't even see that. Yeah. You know? So it's, yeah. The imagery of what, what these guys can see sometimes is pretty impressive. Yeah. That's cool. So what is one skill that beginning mountain bikers can work on that's going to make them a better rider? What's the thing that if you do have that downtime and you have time to practice, what, what could you work on that's going to make you a much better rider? Uh, beginner riders, if you're, if you know, new to the sport, uh, or just, you know, don't get the time out there. I, I, for me, I think the biggest is track stands, right. Is getting to that point. Like that's, that's your, that would be your goal, but just basic slow speed balance, you know, of going from slow movement, keeping the bike upright, keeping the bike balanced, and then, and then eventually move into that true track stand of stopping. I, it's, it's huge because it teaches you what the bike does in relationship to your body. And I think the the hardest part of, for people is, is thinking is that mountain biking itself is a, is a fluid sport, right? So your input is opposite than, you know, what it needs to be. So if, if you think like, if I'm, you know, balancing on the bike and I'm falling one way, it's really common for people to just push in that direction because oh, yeah. that's, that's pushing you away in the opposite direction, but it's actually pushing down. So if you think like, you know, surfboards, you're standing on a surfboard, start, you know, or a stand up paddleboard. If you're standing on it and you have your left foot there and the board starts to dip into the left, you can't step on your left foot to push your body back. And that's, <laughs> right. that's, that's the same thing is, is that with, with most balance work we do, and especially grounded balance work, if you start falling to the left, you push back with your left foot and that brings your body back. But if you're on a bike, it doesn't work that way. And so it's, it's an easy thing is, is you start moving your body around trying to adjust where your body is, but it's not adjusting where the bike is underneath you. And that sort of goes back to what you were talking about, that, that separation, separating the bike and body. And it's, it's really thinking is that the bike is not separate from the body. It's an extension of the body hmm. and how you move affects how the bike is moving underneath you. So I, I would, to go back to it, yeah, track yeah. stance would be the biggest. And it's, it all starts just with slow speed and it's, you know, there's more to it, but like, the simple way to think of it is, you know, your pedal position, you can do it seated or standing, but thinking about your slow speed work would be at starting with that three and nine o'clock position mm -hmm. and then, and then slowly pedaling just to get used to it and then moving it into a ratchet, which would be, you know, if you think clocked of, of pedaling back to, uh, you know, to bring the front foot up, you know, a, an hour or two. So if you start at three, it goes up to two mm -hmm. and then dropping it back down past that to four and trying to keep that movement equal mm -hmm. and then slowing it down. And then the final is thinking about adding a little bit of pressure into the bars. You know, obviously you want weight off the bars in most situations so that you're, you know, supporting, supporting your mass through your feet. But with, with a little weight in the bars, you're actually sort of adding a little, little steering dampening to it, controlling, controlling the, the, the dreaded flop that everybody talks about. Oh, this bike, that bike, oh, it has flop and yada, yada, you know, is, is you can get the bike to track a little better. And then the last is actually like thinking, applying, applying a little rear brake. I always use the rear brake for my track stands for practice because it allows. That's not cheating. Using the rear brake. <laughs> yeah. No, uh -uh. <laughs> you find, you find a lot of people you'll, will use both brakes. And it, if you use both brakes, it kind of locks everything out. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, and if you just allow, you know, allow yourself to use just the back brake, then, then the front wheel can move a little bit. It can rock back and forth. You get a little bit more balance out of it. 
yeah. And then if you wanted to progress it, then you can move it to, to no brakes, you know, and, and then, and then using a little bit of slope so you can use pedal pressure to get yeah. the bike to roll back and forth. Uh, and there's a lot of other body movements that are in there and it would, it would, it would take me a while to walk through all of those. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, those, those are sort of the simple things. It's just thinking, start with a ratchet, a little bit of pressure in the hands, slowly, you know, start coming to a stop, apply the rear brake, and then making sure that your pedals, when you apply the rear brake, are trying to stay as close to that three and nine o'clock position as possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting too, because some of the best track standers that I know are usually road bikers. So mm-hmm. if, if you're a road biker, then yeah, know that you've got, you've got sort of the basic skill down and you can make the transition to mountain biking. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's, I mean, it's, that skill itself is also beneficial because, you know, the common thing is, is people get, you know, scared situations. So you start coming down a steeper descent and if you're not comfortable with slowing down to, you know, almost zero and then getting ready to step off, you're at a disadvantage there too. So putting yourself, putting yourself in a position where you're, you know, sort of tentative or, you know, off the back or however you want to say it, but not having the ability to stop yeah. And then step off the bike is, you know, is, is creating an unsafe environment, you know. So even descending, ascending, you know, just rocky gar- rock gardens, whatever, it's, it's, it's helpful to be confident that you can stop the bike and get out, especially with clipless. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a huge, huge piece. And then it's, you know, it transfers into scouting, you know, you roll up over it, you're on a blind trail, you roll to the top of a hill and you just want to stop for a second. You don't want to put a foot down on clip. You can stop, sort of scout your line, say, yeah, I can ride that or no, this is a good spot to stop or mid trail. Mm -hmm. Buddy does something silly in front of you. You can stop. It's not totally blowing your rhythm. It's, I mean, it, it has all sorts of, all sorts of little pieces. And then the ratchet itself, the most moves into a whole bunch of other skills that you can eventually progress into afterwards. Yeah, that's really cool. So which skills would you say are the most difficult to master when it comes to mountain biking? I would say high speed corners and pretty much all of your wheel lifts, you know, anything, anything that involves lifting the wheel and then coordinating it with, with the timing and everything. I think that those are your, your, you know, hardest skills to master because, they require a lot of preparation, a lot of coordination, and then, you know, a lot of, I don't know, perseverance of, of actually going and following through with it. You know, it's easy to look at something and be like, oh, that's a little rock. But as soon as you start upping, you know, the feature, creating, you know, something that's visually more intimidating, then it, then it gets in there, you know, as far as being quite challenging because you're dealing with all the pieces and then those. Yeah. The wheel lifts for sure. I mean, a lot of people, you look at like the most popular YouTube skills videos out there and they're all the like how to wheelie, how to manual. And we see it all the time too. People are always asking for tips on how to do it. And it seems like, I mean, that's, that's interesting that that is one of the harder skills. I mean, it's not something that's natural and like, Oh, you don't know how to wheelie. Like it's, uh, you look at it and it's, yeah, it's easy to get yourself out of balance and lift the front wheel off the ground. Right. But what, what else do you need to do? Why do you need to do it? You know, and, and figuring out ways to make it more efficient are the, are the big ones, you know, and there's so many different ways too. Right. I mean, whatever you want to call it, the basic wheel lift, like your classic he-man just jump and pick the wheel off the ground. Right. (laughs) And then you, then you go into, 
you know, classic pedal wheelies and like, yeah, pedal wheelies are cool. Do I use pedal wheelies on the trail often? Probably not. Right. Just for style points though. Right. Yeah, exactly. The wave of the camera. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the manual is the, you know, the, the, Oh, everybody wants the manual They're They probably have, you know, some of the, I think manuals are probably one of the most kind of useful ones out there. Yeah. Uh, just because they, they smooth stuff out so much, right. Just being able to, to, lift the front wheel, lighten the front wheel mm-hmm. and get it either, you know, over something or above something is, is probably one of the biggest it's smooths out. So you think you have like a little trough or a little rise, you know, you roll through that trough with both wheels. You have to absorb, you know, the front wheel and then get the rear wheel to track through it. Where if you can, you know, coaster wheelie or manual across it, you can lift that front wheel. And then all you have to deal with is one wheel transferring through that. So it's, yeah. You know, I think I think those are kind of the the best, but you don't have to be riding, you know, manual for 600 yards down a, you know, down a road. Right. It's it's just the, you know, of the the efficiencies, you know, or or the needed movement is only enough to get it past that obstacle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're thinking you can manual for a parking parking space or something like that, that's, you know, that's really all you need. Yeah. You know, if you could do more, yeah, you, you know, you could you could get out there and ride with Bernard Kerr or whatever, whoever the <laughs> right. manual manual Monday guy is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you: is is anyone ever like too old to learn mountain bike skills? I mean, this is maybe this is a dumb question, and it, it's really obvious. But you know, you touched on how younger kids. We look at them and we're like, man, they picked that stuff up so fast. Like I could never do that. But what, what advice would you give someone who feels like maybe they're too old or, or maybe they're stubborn? They're like, I don't, I don't need to learn any new skills. I think the last probably is more true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I work with a lot of, I work with a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say old, I would say young, old and old in years, but young and young in heart. Uh-huh. I, you know, I've worked with guys in their seventies, um, you know, quite often. So it's, it's really just a matter of what, you know, what you're trying to get out of it. I I think that age is really just a, a, a number, you know, I feel that the kids usually aren't in a position to pay for stuff. So, you (laughs) know, whether or not, whether or not they need skills or not, or, or could benefit from it is sort of a moot point, you know, that everyone can benefit from, from learning uh, a new skill or, getting specific instruction, you know, as I said, the, the biggest thing for me, I was, I was a pro and I was like, Oh, I know everything. And I took a lesson and I was like, God, there's a lot more to this than I thought. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's the big thing is, is that people look at it and they're like, well, I've been riding for X amount of years. You know, i I can, I can beat all my friends down the hill, but are you doing it as good as you could? Right. Or is, or is, you know, as could you be better at doing it? Could you pick up something else and have more fun while you're out there? I, you know, I, I try to do stuff out of my comfort zone all the time, you know, safely where I'm not risking it mm-hmm. and, and trying to learn new stuff. Like, yeah, like I've been trying to learn stoppies and nose pivots and, you know, did I, did I think about doing that years ago? No. If I did, I probably would have been better at it now, but it's, yeah, it's, there's always room to, to progress your skills. And I think that finding somebody to help you is going to be, make it, it's going to make it easier. Yeah. You, know, you can go online, you can follow all the, you know, this YouTube video and that YouTube video. It, if I feel that any of the sort of digital instruction without, you know, sort of either 
physical correction or without like a person actually watching it, it leaves a lot for interpretation where you look at it and, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody looks at a picture of a guy going downhill and they're like, oh, well, he moved his body back. And it's like, (laughs) what, what actually happened? Yeah. Well, a lot of those guys even have, they have a hard time explaining it. Right. I mean, a lot of them, like, I don't know, I just do it. Yeah. And that's the difference between you know, going to someone that is an instructor and who really understands like how it all fits together. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, that's, that's for me, the biggest is, is just that interpretation, what people see, how they look at it, what, what they feel is happening compared to what's actually happening. Those for me are the, the, the things I find, I find myself correcting the most often in, uh, in lessons. Yeah. And for me too, you know, I, look at pictures of myself or, you know, doing a bike review and, you know, have somebody take some pictures of me riding the bike. And for years I'll look at the pictures and I'd be like, that's what I do. Like that doesn't look right. You know? And, and you need, you need that like outside perspective, someone to look at it and be like, you're not doing that right. You know, you're getting the job done, but there's a better way to do it. Yeah, totally. I, I think that, I mean, photographs are always sort of deceiving because they can be a snippet in time where, that body movement might be a correction, you know, to another action. And so it may look like it's, you know, something is out of place. No, I'm definitely doing it wrong. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, like I look and I'm like, wow, my arms are like really <clears throat> locked out and really straight, you know, like I need to have more bend in my arms and that's going to help me steering and, and shock absorption and everything else. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, cool. Uh, well, thanks for joining us, Dylan. Really appreciate it. If you want to get more information or to connect with Dylan, you can go on his website, a singletrackmind.com. That's a singletrackmind.com. You can find out about upcoming clinics and private lessons and all kinds of good stuff. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.